Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome David Schaefer, Berkeley professor and serial entrepreneur in the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, let's kick things off, David. Can you share a brief intro with us? Sure. I'm very happy to be here today. Uh, David Schaefer, I'm a professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering, bioengineering and molecular and cell biology at UC Berkeley. Um, I am a bioengineer and neuroscientist by training by way of uh, Stanford, MIT and the Salk Institute prior to getting to Berkeley around 22 years ago. So at Berkeley, uh, my research focuses on gene and cell therapies, and I've also served uh, several administrative roles, was director of the Berkeley Stem Cell Center for 10 years, and about a year ago, transitioned over to being director of QB3, which is a campus institute focused on innovation and entrepreneurship. And in that spirit, I've really enjoyed as well playing a role in transitioning some of the research that we developed in my lab into the private sector. Uh, I've co-founded six companies. Uh, two of those have, have exited so far. One was acquired by a large pharma company about two years ago, and a second, which is now my largest company, uh, we successfully took through an IPO last December. And uh, in addition, I've really enjoyed interacting with industry in other ways, uh, including serving as a uh, member of, a, of uh, four different boards of directors, including two public companies, as well as serving on over a, a dozen SABs for companies. Fantastic, David, and, and what a background and, and how wide-ranging. Uh, help us kind of understand here, so throughout your career, what's been your North Star, if you will, kind of the common thread tying all of your work together? It's really been, you know, both mission as well as science. Uh, Mission-wise, you know, I'm a, obviously a professor. I, I went into academia, and one of the major goals is really to develop the next generation of scientists and engineers. And so it's been really terrific. I've had about 90 people, graduate students and postdocs go through my lab over the years. And it's been, you know, great, you know, kind of like a, a father seeing their children thrive and grow up and succeed. It's been terrific seeing these people having their career develop and having a, a really positive impact on the world around them. And then a second really strong mission for me has been to have a positive impact on human health. And so all of the research within my lab is focused on next generation therapeutic modalities and therapeutics that attempt to address unmet medical need. And so that's, that's also a very strong driving force for, you know, what gets me out of bed every day. And as we talk about kind of the amazing uh, innovations coming out of your lab, one, one question we really love to ask our guests comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, he says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you tell us what does inventing the future mean to you? I think it means, you know, one thing that's really always motivated our work is that we're a very problem-driven lab. And so we, there, there are labs that I think discover for the sake of discovering, you know, scientific curiosity, leads them where they go. And that, that has led to some incredible outstanding research. Uh, we have tended to, to focus on big problems, societal problems. 
And then we'll take that back into our lab and then try to invent a technology technology in a forward way to address those and then try to you know, bring those back into society so that we could potentially address those unmet needs. So, you know, I think that uh, for, for us, it's really identifying big problems and trying to invent solutions to them that, you know, I would define as potentially inventing the future. You're, you're teeing up my questions uh, too, too well here. It's perfect. I love it. Um, so we, we love to ask our guests also, um, really, we, we feel like the, the key to changing the world starts with identifying the right problems to solve. And as you talk about the focus of your lab and uh, diving into your work, um, would love to understand kind of what are you seeing as the grand challenges of life sciences and really kind of over the next 20 years, what do you think those are? Um, so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I'm both a, a molecular and cell biology professor as well as a bioengineering professor. And, you know, the nature of the problems tends to be, you know, of course, a, a little bit different that in MCB, it tends to be very explorational, um, discovery based, hypothesis driven. And this has been, you know, incredible way to discover new phenomena in biology, discover new systems. And you know, this has led to the discovery of RNAi and, and CRISPR-Cas9 as uh, interesting initial observations that led to the development of technology. And uh, you know the the other approach, if I flip on my engineering hat, is to be very problem driven, where you you have the end in mind, you know you you know where you want to go, and then you you know develop technologies that can be able to get you there. And that development in and of itself is is quite challenging, but uh, you kind of know where the goalpost is um, from from the outset. So it's two pretty different approaches towards research and towards biological and biomedical discovery. Um, as for the grand challenges that these can be, you know, deployed to address, uh, you know, where, where do you start? And there's, you know, we are continuously discovering fundamentally new things about life and how it works on our planet and all the complexity that has emerged over the past four billions of years. And in addition, um, those, you know, the, the organisms that have resulted from that evolution uh, have some challenges, you know, um, human beings have societal issues. I mean, obviously, for the past 15 months or 18 months, we've been living through one very big one. So there are, you know, a number of healthcare challenges, climate change challenges, bioenergy challenges that uh, on the engineering side, we'd like to be able to create solutions for. Awesome. Thanks, David. And speaking of challenges, we'd love to hear a little bit more about the challenges that your lab is uh, tackling right now. So could you tell us a little bit about, you know, the projects you're working on and also, what makes your lab an epicenter for entrepreneurial activity? I, and this kind of harkens back a little bit to a comment I just mentioned a minute ago. We're a very problem-oriented lab. You know, I think that within engineering, there can be a kind of a couple of approaches towards developing a, a technological solution. One is to say, you know, I can think of a really, really good hammer. This would be a great, you know, tool if I could create it. And to, to then create the hammer and then go look for nails to, to, to work on and we've kind of taken the other approach, which is to go out into the world and look for nails. And ideally, it's not just one nail. It's a collection of nails that share some common you know, facet such that a single solution or single technology platform can address all of those nails. And then we bring those problems back into the lab, try to create you know, solutions for them, and then go back into the world and start you know, hitting nails, start trying to tackle a broad range of problems. 
so, you know, one thread that's really um, strong throughout my entire career is that when we develop a technology, it tends to be a technology platform. So we uh, created this, this concept of using directed evolution as a tool to engineer novel viruses that are much more efficient at carrying therapeutic DNA inside of cells. And it was a platform where we could develop uh, solutions for delivery to many tissues, you know, brain, spinal cord, liver, skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, lung, et cetera. We've uh, developed a, a way to better biomanufacture stem cells and to, to differentiate stem cells into therapeutically relevant cells for many different tissues throughout the body. It's a scalable three-dimensional biomaterial reactor system that's kind of agnostic as to the cell type that we're trying to generate from it. And then on the, the basic biology side, we do develop technologies for basic biological discovery. So we've developed biomaterial systems that enable us to address kind of a broad range of problems in cell biology, you know, optogenetic technologies that enable us to address a, a broad range of problems. But, uh, you know, again, the thread that kind of strings through each one of these is that we like to identify collections of nails where a single technology platform can really have, have a, um, ideally a very broad impact. And then, so we'll try to then engineer those broad solutions to the problems. So this approach has led you to spin out several companies um, over your time at Berkeley. Over 15 years ago, you pioneered the development of directed evolution methods to diversify AAV delivery vectors for gene therapy. Can you tell us a little more about this, take us through the journey of the discovery and how that's uh, led to the company 40 Molecular? Sure. Uh, so I've been working in the gene therapy field now for 28 years. And, uh, you know, the thing that got me into the field is it was, <laughs> was risk. I like that word. Uh, so at the time when I was in graduate school, I was taking a look at two different projects and two different research labs, both were outstanding, incredible labs. And one of them was on antibody engineering. And the other one was on this thing I'd never heard of before, which was gene therapy, you know, DNA is a medicine and antibodies, you know, they weren't the avant-garde that they are today, you know, obviously Genentech and Regeneron and other companies have really developed antibodies to the stage where they're, uh, you know, very well-established therapeutic modality. At that time, it wasn't quite the case, but I'd certainly heard of antibodies. There were antibody therapies that were, um, I, you know, on their way to being, to being on the market. And uh, I felt that it was almost a little established. And I felt like I wanted to take risk. So that's why I chose the, to, to enter into that gene therapy project and haven't regretted it ever since. So the field has had some bumps along the way. Um, and, you know, those bumps revolved around the word delivery that um, really the Achilles for the entire field since its inception was I can hypothesize what a bunch of DNA medicines would look like. You know, I can hypothesize what a, a chunk of medicinal DNA should look like to be able to treat cystic fibrosis or lysosomal storage disease or hemophilia B. And the tough part is how to get enough of it to the cellular targets within those tissues to, to have an impact. So we you know, always recognize delivery as the challenge. I did initially work in non-viral um, and then switched over to the dark side and began to work with viruses simply because you know, they, as a result or by virtue of the fact they've been evolving for millions and millions of years, already had you know, some decent gene delivery properties um, where you could trick them into delivering a recombinant DNA therapeutic molecule rather than their own genomes. But the problem was, of course, that viruses evolved for one purpose 
uh, which is to kind of thrive in a natural setting. And we were trying to use them for a completely different purpose, which was to deliver recombinant cargo, often to a cellar tissue that the virus never naturally evolved to, to be able to infect. So then the question becomes, you know, how do you rationally engineer or how do you introduce changes into these complicated multi-million molecular weight molecules, viruses, in order to optimize their delivery and to redirect it uh, to the cells or tissues of interest where you would want your DNA cargo to treat a given disease. Uh, so uh, the field at that stage was doing rational engineering, which was that you know they would stare very carefully at the, at the AV we worked with adeno-associated virus as our, as our model initial virus. Uh, at the AV crystal structure, I hypothesized what changes to make, make those, introduce those amino acid changes one by one, test the viruses. And more often than not, those rationally introduced mutations would simply crash the system. You know, it would reduce the ability of the virus to, to deliver DNA into a cell. So the solution to this problem came from a, a, a colleague, a friend and colleague. She was a uh, graduate at UC Berkeley, got her PhD in my home department, uh, although she, she finished up before I got there. She then went to Caltech and invented a field. So uh, her name is Frances Arnold. She was working with enzymes, industrial enzymes, and trying to figure out how to change their catalytic properties, you know, how to get them to work at elevated temperatures or reduced pH or you know, carry out a reaction on a different substrate uh, from the natural substrate. And again, rather than staring at crystal structures and making mutations one by one, Francis decided to emulate evolution, where she took a, a single copy of that enzyme, um, mutated the DNA encoding it, and started creating thousands and thousands of random mutants of that parental enzyme, and then performed high throughput screening to find the ones that had those novel properties, such as catalysis at different temperatures, pH against different rates, et cetera and went out and invented brand new versions of enzymes in a way that emulated how evolution did it, right? Because life has been evolving on the planet for 4 billion years before we ever had a crystal structure of a protein. So we uh, felt that approach. Um, she did that work in the early 90s. I started up my position at Berkeley in the late 90s, and we felt that approach was, was a natural to be able, be able to evolve a gene delivery vehicle uh, a harmless virus like, like AAV, adeno-associated virus. So we started um, inventing the system to do so, created millions initially, and now we've created billions of uh, versions of the virus using a variety of different approaches to sprinkle diversity throughout that protein shell, the capsid, that is the delivery vehicle that carries DNA in, um, from point of administration until it reaches a target. And we then took those millions or billions of AEV variants and performed high throughput parallel uh, selections for evolution to take that large pool and converge it down to a small handful that now specialized at the, at, you know, the properties, at the function that we're asking. So we evolved variants that specialized at delivery in the retina or the brain or delivery to muscle after injection into the bloodstream or to the liver, et cetera. So we initially did that as proof of concept in, in mouse. And then um, back in 2013, when the gene therapy field really started maturing, uh, we felt it was time to, to take this into human. So the, I um, got to know a co-founder uh, who's current CEO of the company, David Kern. And we spun the company out of UC Berkeley back in 2013, uh, began to grow the company, began to evolve variants of AAV for 
highly efficient targeted delivery to a range of tissues in primate. And uh, so, you know, eight years later, uh, we went public last December and uh, are resourced to, you know, further progress the three human clinical trials that we're currently running, as well as to initiate two brand new trials this year for different therapeutic indications. So like you said, gene therapy has become a very hot sector and lately expanding the AAV uh, vector repertoire has been attempted by several companies. For example, George Church's Dino Therapeutics. Could you please comment on the potential of this field when compared to other delivery methods for gene therapies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, AAV engineering is something that I've really devoted a lot of my career to. So back in the the late 90s, you know, the field thought that the solution to gene therapy was AEV serotype two, you know, the, the first variant that was really widely studied. Um, at that stage, I felt like, why should you settle for what nature has thrown over the fence at you? You know, we're human beings and we can engineer things. Let's, let's decide the properties that we want our delivery vehicles to have rather than settling for, for natural variants. Uh, so we started this platform to engineer AAVs and, uh, you know, at that stage, you know, I was an assistant professor, not too many people listened. Then the field thought, well, no, AV2, it, it failed in a clinical trial or two. And really the answer now is AV alternate serotypes. We should be working with AV1, AV8, AV9. So we really kept at trying to, to use evolution and diversity to invent brand new AAVs with the idea that we felt that if you design to task, if you create the vector that has the properties you want, such as optimal delivery to the heart, you don't have to settle again for for specific variants that happen to be isolated from nature where you don't really know what they were selected for. And uh, so then, you know, in the past uh, few years, the field has recognized that you need AVs and have recognized that directed evolution is is a strong approach to do that. So we've seen, you know, new companies popping up and, um, you know, in my mind, that's a good thing because their, their emergence really in, in many ways validates the fact that we've been doing evolution for the past 20 years. You know, it's, it's an important problem or an important approach to tackle an important problem. Uh, so as to how AEV compares to um, other potential delivery vehicles, you know, the way I put it is that I don't say AEV is good because I work with it. I work with AEV because it's good. And it is the most promising vehicle right now. Is it a magic bullet that's going to solve all delivery problems? Probably not. You know, there's some places where it, it can't go. Um, it can't carry super large cargoes. Um, it tends to mediate delivery of DNA in a way that that DNA persists for long periods of time. So most cargoes can fit inside the virus and lots of diseases that we're trying to treat are lifelong diseases where you would like that therapeutic DNA to stick around. But if you need to carry some you know, large complex genome editing machinery into a cell, you know, AV may not be the way to go. Uh, if you'd like to deliver a vaccine where you only need a short burst of expression um, and uh, then you kind of want it to go away and you really don't need very much of it, you know, AV is probably not your vector but there's still a very large amount of uh, you know, gene therapy space where, where AAV is going to really succeed, I think, over the next couple of decades. You've also worked on re-engineering viral capsids for healthcare products in your other companies, such as Ignite Immunotherapies. What are some of the viral repurposing and engineering applications that you're most excited about? Mm-hmm. 
Sure. Um, I can talk about Ignite to an extent. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer and I tend to be problem oriented, right? And so if I see that there were a large class of problems that could be addressed by a very efficient targeted delivery of 5KB of DNA uh, to, to particular cell populations in a body where that, you know, 5KB is persisting for long periods of time. So the, there are large numbers of problems that can still be addressed with that if we can get the delivery even better, the targeting to work really well, where you, you can regulate gene expression very effectively and where you can manufacture your product more efficiently than we can now. So the, there's a long way to go with AAV. Uh, however, there's some other classes of problems where I feel like other viruses are better. And so, um, you know, given that I'm platform agnostic, if you consider cancer, uh, there's this, uh, this concept of oncolytic viruses where there's some viruses that have been shown to selectively replicate in tumors. And you know, the, the biological reason for that is that uh, in order for a virus to replicate, really love to be inside of a cell that's very metabolically active, where there's lots of amino acids and nucleotides and ATP, uh, so that the virus can kind of steal those and harness those to replicate itself. So if you consider what tissues inside the body are highly metabolically active, well, you know, for somebody who's, who's ill with cancer, a tumor is, is just such a tissue. So it's been shown that there are, you know, a good number of viruses that can be engineered further to very selectively replicate within tumors. But following the same idea that if you pick a particular um, oncolytic virus, you know, cancer lysing virus, one of these viruses that selectively replicates in tumors, the off-the-shelf version of that, uh, or if I'll rephrase that, it's likely the case that in millions and millions of years of evolution of, you know, vaccinia virus or adenovirus or other kinds of oncolytic viruses, they've never been evolutionally rewarded for the ability to selectively replicate within tumor cell. Just like, you know, natural AVs have never been evolutionarily rewarded for the ability to mediate delivery from to the spinal cord after intravenous injection. However, evolution is a really great way to apply selective forces to reprogram one of these viruses. Uh, we, we very well established that with AAV. And uh, so we decided to apply evolution towards other viruses that can solve other problems, such as oncolytic viruses. And so that became that concept became the basis of Ignite, uh, which was co-founded again with, uh, with David Kern, who's currently CEO of 4D. Thanks, David. I would um, like to shift our attention to some of the translational, translational research um, beyond your lab. Um, as you mentioned in the beginning, apart from running your lab and being involved in several biotech companies, you also lead uh, QB3, the California Institute for Quantitative Biosciences. So could you please share more about um, the work um, you've been doing at QB3? Sure. Uh, so QB3, we just had our 20th year anniversary. So it was an institute that was founded by, uh, uh, by then Governor Gray Davis at California. And there were several of these institutes that were established um, with the goal of bridging multiple campuses to solve specific problems. So for example, we have Citrus that's headquartered on the Berkeley campus and it's focused on information technology. QB3 was founded between, and that's what the three stands for, uh, three campuses, UC Berkeley, UC San Francisco, and UC Santa Cruz. And its, its goal is really to foster innovation and entrepreneurship in biotechnology. 
So uh, the operations at each of those three universities have been slightly different. But one thing that has really united them, um, especially with the, the leadership of what we call QB3 Central, uh, which is the kind of overarching institution uh, directed by, by Reg Kelly, uh, is that we're very interested in helping the process of taking basic discoveries in the laboratory of those universities and helping to translate that into the private sector. So we have incubator space, we have, we've had you know, venture funding, we've had special relationships with, with law firms to provide you know, pro bono uh, incorporation or IP advice. Uh, we've had partnerships with pharma that have, and relationships with pharma that have enabled us to you know, kind of couple together and NUCO as new companies with, with pharmaceutical companies. So that's, um, that's an effort that's been developing over the years. And you know, one development that we're especially excited about is that on the UC Berkeley campus now, uh, due to a very uh, generous gift from Barbara Bassett, uh, there is uh, this fall gonna be opening a 20,000 square foot incubator or 20,000 square feet of incubator space that can now house brand new biotechnology companies. And QB3 is going to be operating and running this space, you know, based on the fact that we've had previous experience with, with operating incubator facilities, especially in, in San Francisco. So uh, we're currently really, you know, building and launching, uh, you know, not just the logistics to run the incubator space uh, and make sure it has all the right equipment and all the right, you know, layout, but also developing programming and funding uh, to be able to help out and mentor and foster the new companies that end up being tenants within that space. So I've been in this role for almost a year now, and it's, you know, it's, to be honest, been a real blast uh, to be able to take some of the knowledge that I've developed over the past eight, nine years in informing companies of my own and then trying to share that with the community here. What an exciting time to be a part of this initiative. Um, could you perhaps compare for us, what are the similarities and differences in the approaches to translating um, research at QB3 and across your lab and um, in other institutions you've been a part of? Well, um, so, you know, I, I guess I come from a couple of places with, with good histories. Um, did my undergrad at Stanford and my, my graduate work at MIT, both of which have had very you know, successful track records of translating research. Um, I'll say that you know, probably by and large, uh, public schools have not had as broad an impact in translating technology. Uh, you know, public schools are uh, funded by the state, although that's been happening to a lesser and less, lesser extent as time goes on, unfortunately, but have been funded by the state to, to educate the youth of that state. And you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurship and you know, new company formation, you know, is is something that's um, wasn't considered to be you know front and center within the missions of those universities for for a long period of time. There's some companies, or sorry, some universities that really figured out that entrepreneurship can be a really strong extension and expansion of the central mission of that university, which is to have a positive impact on society. So one great example is uh, University of Wisconsin, which formed a uh, you know, private 501c3 called uh, Wharf um, that manages their IP portfolio. And Wharf has been very successful in uh, you know, taking technology developed at University of Wisconsin, putting it into the private sector, and also returning funds, um, proceeds of that, back to the university to further the educational mission of the university. Uh, UC Berkeley uh, and UCSF, 
um, have you know not been as mature in doing this uh, until the past ten years or so. And you know, things that have emerged are that you know Berkeley was a bit more oriented towards basic sciences. We still are very strong with basic sciences, but there's also a recognition among many of our basic scientists that they also have an interest in getting that technology from the lab into the private sector. We have a bioengineering department that was founded 20 years ago, um, probably took 10 years to mature and is now really um, up to speed in, in creating new technologies. And we really want to be there um, as an institute to, to help all these young entrepreneurs on the campus and newly emerging entrepreneurs you know, maximize their ability for, for their work to have an impact. So David, you've teed up the next question perfectly once again, um, but you've spent your career at a variety of different institutions across the continent. Could you please describe what in your opinion constitutes a research culture fostering innovation biotechnology? And further, how have you as a leader uh, created and maintained such an environment? Well, I think, you know, one way to answer that is to, to ask what brought me to the Bay Area to begin with. And I wanted to have a research environment that had, you know, a number of different facets. So I wanted to have, you know, outstanding basic sciences, you know, chemistry, biology, physics. I uh, wanted to have, you know, outstanding engineering. Um, I wanted to have a medical school, at least one that was close by, if not on the same campus. And then wanted to have a terrific academic hospital system and, and strong biotech and pharma uh, within the area. So, of course, if you have all of those things, by definition, you're recruiting um, really smart people to the area. Uh, because, you know, the, there have been, I can mention a number of people who have been through my lab that have had a terrific impact and who have been incredibly talented and to which I'm ever grateful for their hard work and their brains and their ingenuity and creativity. So you need really smart people. And in that mix, um, and in another facet that I personally like a lot is uh, you know, a very strong collaborative spirit. Um, states, universities like, like UC Berkeley or UCSF, we don't have the endowments of, you know, of Harvard and Stanford. We're not highly, highly wealthy universities. And you know, we're continuously facing cuts from the state. So we really are, have to be scrappy and have to try to make the most of what we have. And one thing that has that has fostered is that we realize that you can do more impactful research if you bring multiple professors together than if each one functions independently. And so by you know, enjoying those synergies across disciplines and across departments, you know, we've been able to try to keep up with the privates by recognizing that one plus one can be equal to three when you collaborate. So it's in that, that mix of really smart people, outstanding basic sciences, engineering, medicine, biotech, pharma, uh, and, and highly collaborative spirit that I've really thrived. And that's, that's really what has kept me at Berkeley all these years. And I, you know, I really feel that that's at the heart of the kind of research that I enjoy doing. David would like to learn a bit more um, about the research you're doing in the lab, partly because something we haven't covered yet is your work in tackling new uh, neurodegenerative disorders. Um, so this is one of the toughest areas of disease to work with, given the relative scarcity of our fundamental knowledge in this field. Uh, but it is also becoming inc increasingly important for our aging population. So could you please describe for us what is the current state of art in the neurodegenerative treatments and 
what do you think is the potential of gene therapies um, of uh, in advancing this field? Uh, sure. Uh, so, I mean, I'll, I guess I'll talk a little bit about why we work in gene and cell therapy and then talk about its application to neurodegenerative disease. So in general, if you take a look at, you know, many of the conditions afflicting our population these days, many of them are long-term chronic conditions. So, you know, heart disease, uh, diabetes, neurodegenerative disease, um, et cetera. These are conditions that progress over the time course of years or, or even decades. And the types of therapies that are standard of care throughout, you know, most of biotech and pharma are small molecules and proteins. So we're, we're taking conditions that last for years or decades and treating them with therapies that last hours to days in the body. So, you know, I, I don't want to knock much on, on small molecules and, and proteins. They've transformed healthcare, but by definition, these are treatments, right? They're not cures. So these function by targeting proteins in the body, you know, small molecules inhibit enzymes, uh, monoclonal antibodies, you know, often function by inhibiting signaling pathways by binding to a receptor or to a ligand. And, uh, you know, one possibility for getting a longer lasting effect is to, uh, is to try to drug RNA. So we have antisense, we have RNAi, we have messenger RNA, you know, you know thanks Moderna and Pfizer. And um, another approach is to actually drug at the level of DNA, to treat DNA as a drug target. And that's where my entire career lies. So if you're adding new DNA to a genome, that's gene therapy. If you're editing existing DNA, that's genome editing. If you're adding brand new genomes to a tissue, that's cell therapy, such as a stem cell therapy. And what distinguishes that from RNA as a drug or, or proteins and small molecules as drugs is the DNA has the potential to persist for years or even decades for the life of the patient. So we can at least begin to imagine the idea of single treatment, long-term therapeutic effect. And in addition, because it's at the level of DNA, if, you know, if it's possible to do so for a disease condition, you can actually treat the underlying molecular genetic cause of the disease. So you can actually really improve patient quality of life and possibly be one and done, you know, single administration. So as a result, it's um, very amenable to treating, if we, can, if we can do this right as a field, a broad range of degenerative conditions, especially ones in the nervous system. So what distinguishes the nervous system from others um, is really, you know, two things. It's really complicated tissue, uh, you know, try to understand how Alzheimer's works. And in addition, delivery is a really big problem. You know, we have this thing called the blood-brain barrier is often impenetrable to small molecules and other therapies you know, that we would like to be able to get into neurons. So gene therapy does have the potential to, to solve or address those problems and stem cell therapies do as well. Uh, I view those two modalities as kind of at different points on a spectrum that if you catch a condition early enough, you can potentially deliver DNA to a cell to rescue that cell, to prevent it from dying and to correct its function. If you get there too late and a tissue is broken down too much, uh, so by the time somebody begins to present with Parkinson's symptoms, They've lost, you know, it's estimated anywhere from 50 to 80% of the effective neurons of the midbrain dopamine neurons. So in that case, uh, gene therapy may not be as, as optimal as you would like. In that case, maybe you need a cell replacement therapy. But whether you're delivering DNA to, to rescue a cell or delivering a brand new cell to repopulate a tissue, 
those do have the potential to persist for a long period of time because example, the average lifespan between when somebody ends up getting diagnosed with Parkinson's and when they ultimately pass away is, is 15 to 20 years. So it'd be terrific if you had a, a single treatment that could actually correct somebody's health throughout that entire time. Sometimes we just imagine these treatments and then they, they arrive in no time. Um, our recent podcast uh, guest, um, Sean Gandhi, uh, director of uh, Northbound Ventures, shared his experience of the evolution of immunotherapies within his time of medical residency. So just in a couple of years, the field moved from zero to one in curing previously untreatable diseases. So do you think we can, and if so, when, make such a leap in treating neurodegeneration? Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, we really need uh, often two things. We need a, enough of an understanding the underlying mechanisms for that disease. And then we need a therapeutic modality that, that can treat it. Uh, I, I have, you know, a lot of, of enthusiasm and a lot of optimism when it comes to, to addressing those two problems for a good number of neurodegenerative conditions. Uh, in some cases for, you know, so-called orphan or, or monogenic inherited disorders, Mendelian inherited disorders, you can pin the blame on mutations in a single gene, right? So you know the broken gene. And then if you can deliver the correct copy of that DNA for, for recessive disorders, then you can, you can really treat the disease. And in that case, the limitation is the delivery. And we're getting better and better as a field at delivery, you know, for example, with engineered AAVs. So I, I think that you know, the solution is in sight for a lot of those monogenic disorders, like spinal muscular atrophy, where an FDA approved gene therapy already happened. Uh, for uh, lysosomal storage diseases, um, which are by and large rare diseases, but are incredibly devastating to, to young children. Then there are the, the tougher conditions, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, where we don't understand the underlying mechanisms yet. Um, however, for some of these situations, like Parkinson's disease, we know that regardless of what the underlying mechanism is, and it's likely a very complex mix of, of uh, nature and nurture, of genetics and environment, uh, it converges at the death of a single population of cells, uh, these midbrain dopamine neurons, and we can create, we can mass produce those from stem cells now. Um, one of my new companies is focused on doing that. So for that situation, it, we understand enough about the underlying disease and we can create a therapeutic that can potentially reverse that disease, then I'm, I'm optimistic about that as well, looking ahead. Uh, Alzheimer's is more complicated, so it's, it's going to take more time to develop an understanding about how to treat it. And David, before we come to close here, uh, a few rapid fire questions to cap things off. Um, if you will, can you describe biotech in, in, in 2050, the, the landscape, kind of where will we be in the scheme of things? Yes, I think that, um, you know, looking at, if we take a look at the progression of therapeutic modalities, uh, small molecules, you know, that, that era was ushered in over 100 years ago. Uh, protein therapies were really born in the early 20s with the, the discovery of insulin and the recognition it could treat type 1 diabetes. And of course, recombinant DNA revolutionized uh, uh, recombinant protein therapies you know, everything from recombinant insulin to lots of monoclonal antibodies. So that's two of therapeutic modalities. 
Then we have some nucleic acid therapies, um, RNAi and antisense and messenger RNA. We have gene therapies that have begun to arrive. And uh, you know, we're just at the very beginning of that. And then in the future, I, uh, cell therapies are, are gonna end up being a wave. Uh, and somewhere along the way there, we're gonna have genome editing, which is kind of be, gonna be in between gene therapy and cell therapy. So we have these waves of therapeutic modalities and innovations that are chipping away at some of the major health problems that we've had as, as a society. So this, uh, this leads to the concept of, you know, what do we want as a field? And there is um, uh, this concept of lifespan versus wellspan. And, you know, lifespan, is, of course, is how long you live. But if you're suffering from Parkinson's disease during the last 15 of your years of your life, that's not, you know, that's, that's not a high quality of life. So there, that brings in the second concept of wellspan, that I want to live my full life, plus I want to be healthy and well throughout that entire time. So that, to me, would be an ideal. You know, we, we live, quote unquote, normal lifespans, or maybe a little bit higher than normal, because if you take away some of the causes of early death, then on average, people are going to live longer. Uh, I don't want to live to be 100 or 120. I'd love to live to be in my 80s and have a, you know incredible healthy life all the way to, to the point that uh, I'm no longer on the planet. As we look into the crystal ball and gaze at the future, as exciting as it is, one must ask, what role does ethics play in guiding the development and use of the ever-increasing power of biotechnology? Do you worry at all about biodefense? Yeah, I think there are a couple of um, sort of third rails of, of, uh, of bioethics within our field. Uh, one of them is what you'd call germline gene therapy or germline, germline genome editing, where you're actually editing or changing or adding to the DNA that gets passed along to the next generation. Uh, so right now with the gene therapy, to be able to get treated with that, that therapy, you know, we consent. There's informed consent. Uh, a doctor tells somebody who's going to treat, they're going to treat or else tells the parents of the kid who is going to get treated, you know, what the risks and the benefits are. And there's a decision there. If you start doing germline editing, that's you know kind of experimentation without consent, and then you're changing the genetic composition of the human species, and the field wrestles with that a little bit or a lot. Uh, so currently, nobody is talking about gene therapy for for germline. Um, you know, another kind of gray area is how do you differentiate between uh, performance, uh, you know, therapy or or treatment or repair versus performance enhancement. And, you know, everybody would be safe if you asked, you know, should we treat somebody with Parkinson's? Uh, there's, you know, a, a loss of quality of life and we'd like to get them back to, you know, what their normal was before they, they began to suffer from the symptoms. Then you start asking like, well, what if I want, you know, green eyes instead of blue eyes? And what if I want to, to be stronger? And I have had people approach me asking if they can obtain a gene therapy to, to, to be anabolic, to build their muscle. And you know the field is not comfortable with performance enhancement. We are we are comfortable with performance rescue. Uh, so those are you know kind of the two bioethically laden areas that that I think about. And you know, by and large, the field is, has developed a really strong consensus that those are two lines that we're not willing to cross right now. You mentioned biodefense. What do you mean by biodefense? Um, so. I think this plays into something that we've seen with 
are something that we've seen more recently, the potential to start engineering these viruses uh, to create pandemics. Is this a concern to you at all? Yeah, so the, um, you know, the evolving viruses, uh, we evolve harmless, good viruses. You know, one of the requirements that, that we had in, in entering into this work is that uh, AV is harmless. You know, it's non-pathogenic, never been associated with human disease. So we're starting with something quite safe. We have many me measures to contain it within the laboratory. And the thing that makes that out of the lab is, uh, is an engineered particle carrying a, a therapeutic piece of DNA. It's not, it can't replicate on its own. So it's disabled. Uh, so um, people don't need to start with, you know, using my technology to engineer a, a harmless virus as a way to create a, a bioweapon. Unfortunately, there's some pretty nasty viruses out there that, uh, you know, emerge from natural evolution, not directed evolution. So, you know, there's smallpox, there's SARS-CoV-2, which uh, obviously emerged, unfortunately, in, in a process of real-time evolution and natural selection that we're observing now. So uh, the techniques that we developed, I think, are amenable to being, being able to create, you know, therapeutic versions of harmless viruses. And if one wanted to create a better pathogen, there, unfortunately, there are already versions that are out there in the wild. David, it's been fantastic learning more about your work. Uh, any closing thoughts or, or, or shameless plugs you'd like to share with our listeners? <laughs> no shameless plugs. I'm, I'm just grateful to the three of you that, uh, uh, you know, I think that sometimes uh, scientists don't have an opportunity to be able to convey to, to a broader audience what motivates us and, and get under the hood of the work, the work that we're trying to do. So many thanks thanks to the three of you for providing such a friendly forum uh, to, to enable us to try to, uh, as best we can, try to convey our work to the public and try to, to educate, which is, you know, obviously an extension of the, the mission we're trying to conduct within the university. Great to meet a kindred spirit, David, and, and thanks for coming on the show. And uh, what an absolutely incredible episode. We're, we're very grateful for your time. Thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.